And today is the the second Sunday that we are taking a look at Isaiah 61. So um, join with me as I read from Isaiah 61. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. Foreigners will stay and shepherd your sheep, and strangers will be your farmers and vine dressers. You will be called priests of the Lord ministers of our God. They will say about you, you will feed on the wealth of nations and fatten yourself on their riches. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It is really good to be with all of you this morning. This is, um, this is the week kind of a few weeks into the month of January when I start to give up on my New Year's resolutions. In fact, I tend to keep the same two New Year's resolutions from year to year because I, I fail to complete them every year, so I just let them roll over. They're still useful. But I'll tell you what I do instead for each year, and some of you know this about me. Every year for the last several, instead of choosing resolutions, I choose a, a motto or like a catchphrase for the year. And this is always tricky because when I choose the motto, I don't know yet what the year is going to be, but the motto every single year ends up being prescriptive in a very surprising way. So I'm, I'm actually really glad that 2016 is over because 2016 was um, the motto was the year of hustle. This year, 2017, I'm calling the year of the fox, mostly because I'm hoping to be more sly, but we'll see what actually ends up happening in it. This is, it's, it's kind of a silly practice, but I do think that there's something to claiming certain seasons to be about certain things. We do this in the church calendar when we recognize that a season of joy is going to depend on a season of longing. And a season of longing depends on waiting, and waiting is going to depend on hope, and hope is going to depend back on joy. And it's a somewhat dangerous practice to claim a season. Just like my mottos rarely work out the way that I think they're going to work out, God tends to surprise us by showing up and exploding our expectations. 
So it's with this mindset, this expectation that God is going to show up and explode our expectations that we look again this week at Isaiah 61. This passage, it's, it's like the motto of our life together. It's the song that we sing to orient ourselves in time and space and to keep us bound to our identity and to our purpose. And I know, especially as we enter another year together, that we are going to be surprised by the ways that this vision and our claim to be a people of hope and of healing and of hospitality, we're going to be surprised by the way that that actually plays out in our common life together. Last week, we talked about what it means to be a people of hope, what it means for us as Oak Church to speak over this season, the sort of unquenchable, unstoppable hope that allows us to sing even with weary throats. And this foolish sort of hope feels especially timely. This week, especially our country, our neighborhood, even our daily patterns with each other are weary and tired and aching for jubilee. And I love this image that we ended with last week of the oaks of righteousness. I don't think there's actually a more hopeful image than a healthy forest, a healthy ecosystem. Because a tall, straight, thick oak tree means that health and life has been present and sustained for years. And it promises to withstand wind and storm and drought for years to come. And this is what the people of God are called, oaks of righteousness. Because of the work that God has already done through them and for them, and this is what we saw last week in verses 1 through 3, the prophet is describing these immediate identity-altering changes, these renewals. It's good news to the poor. The brokenhearted are bound up. The captives are released. The Spirit of the Lord comes and anoints the prophet to proclaim a deep shift in the order of things. And these free people, these bound up people, these provided for and comforted and vindicated people, they have a new identity as oaks of righteousness. These are people who have experienced healing. This is the new identity that they've been given. And what I love about these healed people, these planted oaks, that they turn, and in verse 4, they begin a new work based in that identity. They turn and they begin to rebuild the city. These healed people become healers. So that's the movement that we're going to look at today, what it means for us as a church first to be a healed people, like these oak people in Isaiah, and then what it means for us to turn and to join in the Lord's work of healing. And I know sometimes we tend to think about healing as sort of one of two things, one of two models, and we concentrate a lot of our time trying to decide which model we fall into. There's the camp that says it's sort of this um, miraculous New Testament zip, zap type healing where the demon is cast out, the leper is cleansed, and the lame start jumping for joy. And if we concentrate only on the, the zip zap type healing, sometimes we start to wonder 
uh, where that healing is in our daily experience, if we don't see it often, do we, we ask ourselves, do miracles still describe the way that Jesus works on earth? And then sometimes, on the other hand, we find ourselves in the camp of people that tend to concentrate and think about um, what Dr. King called this long moral arc of the universe that slowly bends towards justice. We read these visions in Revelation of the new heaven and the new earth, and we know that our God is a God who's going to bring restoration, but we wonder sometimes where that restoration is here and now. Because that long sort of vision can sometimes feel like hope too long deferred when we are already thirsty and sore and tired and when our neighbors are already fearful and hurting. And I think when we do this, when we divide up the way we think about healing into these two sort of warring camps, we get distracted and we start to think that these time frames and these models, these mysteries are going to reveal some sort of magic key for how we can control and bring about healing. Instead of thinking that all healing testifies to the fact that God is always a healer, that our God is the one in whom healing is found. I love that in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't heal any one way. He speaks to some, he zaps some from long distance, he forgives sins, and then as an afterthought says, oh, stand up and walk. He touches eyes, he spits in mud, and then he touches eyes again because it didn't really work the first time. And he makes someone go and wash in a pool. He casts out demons with his words and his prayers. The common denominator in all of these stories is Christ himself. Christ's love and forgiveness. Jesus is healing. And this same Christ, same God, is the God who is invested in the long, slow work of redemption that is unfolding sunrise by sunrise over our weary world. So as people who have been healed by Christ, we don't get to choose between thinking of healing as miraculous and thinking of healing as ordinary because any healing is both miraculous and ordinary. It's always tied to God's in-breaking reality. It's like a garden. The only way we uh, live is by eating. And eating relies on the miracle of food. And yet we are filled with food so faithfully every day that I know for me, gardens have ceased to feel like miracles and they've become ordinary. So as we turn from an image in verses one through three of immediate healing to a picture of joining in God's complete restoration, what we're turning towards is not a magic trick or a secret formula, but instead to a commitment to participate in God's healing work wherever and however it shows up. In this work, we continue to enjoy and live into our own healing, which is already complete in Christ, but still being worked out, played out, as our story together is bound up with this complete restoration of the world. And sometimes this healing work will be surprising and immediate and sudden. A few chapters before, 
prophet Isaiah says that healing might just spring up speedily, like light breaking forth in the dawn. Or healing might look like the prophet's vision here of sort of this long, slow rebuilding of ruins. Imagine with me this picture of a destroyed city in verse 4. I can read it again for us. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. This is an apocalyptic landscape. It's a picture of a ripped open earth. You can, you can almost see actually the, the tumbleweed kind of going across the screen and you can hear the creaking of a door about to fall off of its hinges. And this isn't just a picture of physical despair. This used to be a home. Can you imagine walking back through these streets, having been sent years before into exile, and you see the same corner that you grew up on, now completely unrecognizable underneath the rubble? That's what these oaks of righteousness, these freed captives see. That's the work that's set before them, the task at hand. And I know for many of us, this week, that's how it feels to be in the world and to be in our neighborhoods. Healing can seem impossible in the landscape that looks like this. It strikes me reading this passage that in the same way a city, when it's healthy, is like a healthy body with many parts all working together, sort of this humming chaotic, thriving order. So a city is like a body in the way that it heals. And I'll warn you guys, I did call my doctor friend to learn about wounds and wound care, but I didn't get a hold of him. So we're going to be working with the very basics. But I do know that the first step in healing a wound is to stop whatever's hurting it. Sounds kind of dumb. But before the work of healing can begin between friends, between family members, between citizens in a divided nation, there has to be an end to whatever is causing the wound. This means that we can't just jump into healing from injustice while that injustice is still rampant. In the, in the Old Testament, the practice of jubilee was like a reset button on society. Every 50 years, captives were set free, debts forgiven, and families returned to their allotted land so that justice could once more be characteristic of God's people, and then there could be real healing in that land. I don't know if we have any practice comparable to this total jubilee. And I'll be honest, sometimes it is hard for me even to imagine what some of the broken cycles that I'm a part of would look like if they were healthy and no longer creating new wounds. And in some of these cycles, some of these places, we might never get beyond fighting to establish the justice that would make healing a real possibility. But that... Oak Church, that can be our work. 
we can be people who start the train of healing by throwing our lives against whatever it is that is causing the hurt in the first place. Anyone who's ever been cut, which I'm assuming is all of us at this point, knows that the next step in healing is to clean the wound. And this, in my mind, is definitely the worst part. And when I was little, it was really nice because I could blame my mom for having to wash out my scraped up knees. But now, as mostly an adult, I have to wash out my own cuts with soap because I know that even if it looks okay, deep inside there are these insidious little germs living in the bottom of the deepest parts of my wound. And I know that if I don't grit my teeth and clean even that, those germs can compromise the healing and create new infections. So I think in our common life together, this sort of cleaning and digging might mean courageously having a hard conversation and getting to the bottom of what's really going on between two people. Or it might mean speaking the truth courageously against the infection of lies that can creep up inside our own minds and prevent us from hearing the Lord's whisper of love. Chris mentioned how on um, MLK Day, we got to jump in with Keep Durham Beautiful and a lot of our friends. And one of the things I saw was um, Joey Morningstar taking a knife to a root system that had completely blocked up a street drain. And it took over an hour for four of us to scrape away at the leaves and the mud and the gunk that was covering that drain. But we knew that if we didn't clean it all the way down, the problem was just going to come back again. And it might feel for us as we join in the Lord's healing work that all of this digging and cleaning isn't the work of healing itself. Because healing, strictly speaking, is the ordinary miracle of cells actually like knitting themselves back together and of tender new skin making an overnight appearance. And we don't, strictly speaking, make that happen. But without all of this digging and cleaning and without creating a safe, uninfected, hospitable environment for healing, the miracle of new growth is going to be compromised from the beginning. In our passage, the work of restoring a city isn't just about rebuilding the ruins and making new structures like roads and houses and markets. Because roads and markets aren't a city. A city is the, the living, thriving people. And only the Lord is able to, re, to turn a rebuilt ruin, a rebuilt structure into an actual city. We participate in healing, but the miracle of renewal is always Christ. It's always Christ's power. So the next step, the next part of participating in healing is trust and waiting. And I know that this is not easy. I so often want to force healing before the time is ripe. But remember how healing is like planting a garden 
Without our care and without our watering and our tending, there's no garden. But on the other hand, nothing that I can do is going to make that shoot come up from the ground. And when we get impatient for the Lord to do what only the Lord can do, I think sometimes we can actually, this is a gross image, I apologize, but we can kind of pick the scab off of this tender new miracle. When we try and take control, take matters into our own hands, we can compromise this sort of tremulous process that's happening already in a place we can't see yet. And this sort of patience is easier when it's hypothetical, but I know that the minute that I'm waiting for an answer and for a restoration, for healing for somebody that I love, I want to rush in and I want to say, "Mm, God, your timing isn't fast enough. I think of Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker writing about healing from depression, who said that the soul is like a wild animal in that it is resilient, but it's also really shy. He says, if you want to see a wild animal, the last thing you should do is go crashing into the woods, yelling for it to come out. Instead, he describes the community that surrounded him, a community that can surround a person who's healing and is willing to wait and to listen and to support and to treat the mystery of whatever work the Lord is doing like it really is a mystery. And then, like the blooming of an ordinary garden, we can count on healing to come. It's who our God is. And when healing does come, we're going to recognize it not by a restoration of how things used to be, but by a scar. It's I actually think that your healed skin takes on a different color just so that you have to tell the story of running into a door again and again and again as people ask about it. I know for many of us, we think of scars actually as marks of incomplete healing, healing that didn't quite make it all the way and now is somehow ugly. But I wonder what would happen if we thought about our scars as testaments to healing or signpost towards redemption. I grew up in Illinois, where as a kid, you learn about the Chicago fire. When Chicago burnt down and that cow kicked over the lantern, there's a song about it. uh, Instead of everyone moving to Iowa, Chicago was replanned with new state-of-the-art infrastructure. New Chicago was really just a really fancy scar on top of old Chicago. And it was in itself a mark of the story, a mark and a testament to that which is rebuilt being more beautiful than the beginning. This is a Revelation 22 vision, a new city that is built on the infrastructure of a restored world all of it proclaiming God's nature as a healer. And the other sign that healing has happened is restored usefulness. 
Okay, think about this. You break your arm, it heals, and then you get to use your arm again. It's awesome. In this new city of Isaiah 61, the sign of a healed city is that foreigners are going to stay and shepherd the sheep, and strangers are going to be farmers and vine dressers. So just as a healed limb is recognizable by its usefulness, this healed city is recognizable by its ability to welcome the stranger and the foreigner and to turn them from aliens into neighbors and co-workers. That is the mark of a city's health, its ability to take in and to celebrate the life of all people. And that's, that's what we were made for. In verses 5 and 6, the residents of this city are now priests of the Lord, and they can enjoy the wealth and the food and the kindness and the life of the world. And they testify to these nations about the healing that they've received. So I'll argue, maybe against the doctors, that the actual last step in healing is celebration. A restored delight in being richly who we are. and Being able to continue the work that we were meant to do. This healed city is a city of priests because it's a city of people who have stories of their own healing that they can tell those who are in need. So I think our scars are not just a mark of our healing, but sometimes they themselves are what make us newly useful because they give us the ability to understand and to walk with those who need healing. Our scars are what we carry to the nations who are our neighbors. Henry Nouwen talks about this paradox. He says, our own experience with loneliness, depression, and fear can become a gift for others. Our wounds allow us to enter into deep solidarity with our wounded brothers and sisters. So in the same way, last week we talked about hope, firing hope, so healing can bring healing as our scars become the fertile ground in which a new miracle can bloom. Before we wrap up, I want to tell you all a story. And this is actually the story of the first year that I gave a year a motto, 2012, which was my original year of Jubilee. And what is really incredible is that someone actually gave me a free t-shirt in that year that says Jubilee 2012. So if anyone this year finds um, a t-shirt that says 2017, Year of the Fox, please let me know. I would love that. The fall of 2011, so the fall before, was my junior year of college. And this was one of the darkest seasons of my life. Um, I experienced the return of a depression that I thought I was completely done with at that point. 
And if, if any of you has ever experienced depression, um, you will know the sort of tenor of the darkness um, that feels like. It feels like you're sort of like encircled or, or wrapped up in despair. It was deeply spiritual for me. My faith was, well, it fell apart. And it was, it was held together only by the weekly act of taking communion. It was relational. I felt very alone. And nothing that my friends or my family could say was going to convince me otherwise. It was physical. I would sleep for whole days. And then I would sometimes get up and run and run and run like I was trying to outrun sort of this shadow that was over me. Uh, And winter came, as it does, to Chicago, and it was cold, 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 cold. And I was surrounded by the type of healing community that I would wish for every person, surrounded by these gentle, praying people who uplifted me and held me together. And just like any healing, I can't tell you if it happened all at once or if it was a slow sunrise. There were certain conversations that stand out in my mind. There was a prayer that I remember and a phone call with my sister. But all of these things, all of these details, um, they were just a part of something else, a part of sort of this like slow warming that happened with that spring. There is a marsh near where I lived, Lincoln Marsh, Austin knows it, where I used to go and run. And every winter, the Forest Service would burn that marsh to make room for new growth that was coming in. And all winter long, I would be running through this gray soil that was mixed with ash. And that winter, especially, I felt like I was also swept with fire like that marsh and cleaned out, turned to sort of this ashy, fallow ground that was just longing for spring. Ooh, and it is a long winter in Chicago. (laughs) But my community continued to pray for me and helped me. And somehow, underneath all of that, there was this mystery happening underground. And then one day, right before Easter, in the marsh, these shoots came up. And they were a color green that I don't know how to describe to you. They were bright green. And I wasn't out of the woods yet. It was going to be a long season of healing that was just beginning for me all the way through the year of 2012. But all of the parts of that story, the fire that burnt the marsh and the sadness that I carried for a season and that sort of 
deep, long, ripening hope and then this final surprising fulfillment and joy. All of that is what I carry with me when I tell people about what the Lord has done for me. That year of Jubilee, that ripening, that healing, and that scar, that's the only way that I know how to look at a world and a country and a neighborhood that looks really desolate and broken and a hope that healing is still going to come. Because Jesus is a healer. And Jesus was wounded. And because of those wounds, I think that there is nothing that Jesus cannot and will not heal. So as we continue to to turn from our own healing and to join in that healing work, it is easy to grow weary, tired of digging into hurts and washing out painful wounds, and tired of waiting for the miracle of new growth to come. Even sometimes tired of looking at our scars and choosing to see that whole story. But these scars, they're a marker of redemption. They're a signpost to healing because they testify to who Jesus is and to the healed city that he is already establishing. Will you pray with me? God who heals, thank you. Thank you for your character that would choose to submit to pain so that we could be healed. Thank you for your creativity that it looks different for each of us to participate in your work. Thank you for, for this church and this neighborhood. We, we just ask for your presence with us, that we would continue to, to see more of who you are and to know you more and more. And we love you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.